Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah 9. And last time we were in 7 and 8 and we talked about basically the message was titled Spiritual Heart Building because the walls were built, the gates were up, the temple was standing again. Uh, the Jewish people had it up, Nebuchadnezzar came 586, destroyed it, raised it to the ground, everything had to be rebuilt, so it comes up again. And Jewish people are very excited. This is the 5th century BC, this is historical fact under the Persian monarchy and domination. And God needed to build their hearts as well. And I make a really interesting comparison with the church. And I do it. I'm guilty. I say, hey, Wednesday night Bible study, we're going to go to church. As if the church is a building. Church is not a building. Ecclesia, the Greek word, means the body of believers. When the last person leaves this place, it's no longer the church. It's just a building. But you can see beautiful churches, ornate churches, with uh, really fancy designs and such, very ostentatious. But what's inside of the church? The people. That's who God cares about. He doesn't care about the building. He cares about the people. And churches can look really pretty too on the outside, but where are the hearts of the people? So, you know, you can see some pretty neat parallels there. Uh, this morning's sermon is called National and Personal Revival. Now, what I find interesting is that, you know, months ago, before we start a new book, I, I always pray, Lord, what book do you want me to go into? And a few th things come to mind, and then I pick one. Well, a lot has changed in the last few months in our country, and it's very ironic that when I go through a new book and there's a theme, I often see it play out in our culture. So I know God's working in this church, which is a wonderful thing. And we have a very sick society. It's ill. It's, it's in its death throes. It needs healing. And as we look at what's going on in Nehemiah and the children of Israel, that national and personal revival, I couldn't help but make the comparison to our culture, but also the Christian culture. I'm reading a lot of articles with, with clergy, pastors, who are really saying to Christians, Christians you, we need to step up our game. Because look at society. We can't be the ostrich who puts our head in the sand while Rome is burning. You know, things are happening in our culture. Are we going to be a part of the solution? Or are we just going along with it? We're supposed to set the tone because we know Jesus Christ and he has the answer. He has love. He has the gospel. Uh, so I'm going to take this in four parts and uh, have some fun with it, I hope. So Nehemiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities, or the sins of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So the first point out of four is the spiritual preparation of Israel, of the Israelites. And this was over and above what was expected of them. We saw the last two chapters, again, no chapter delineations till many centuries later. It's supposed to be understood as a chronological historical account. And we saw 
that there were some things that the leaders wanted the children of Israel to do. However, this goes over and above. Now, I have to make the parallels because it's fascinating. I, I look at a situation today, you know, the church. People come and assemble, the church, right? Reading God's word, having it explained, then go home. I look at this as, let's take the next step. Oh, that's, you know, Pastor Joe cracked the joke today. Pastor Vinny did a skit. How neat. This, I would say, is going over and above. So in other words, come, hear the word, then go and do and apply and let the word permeate all aspects of our lives. Like, in essence, that you should come here and have an expectation of me or the other pastors and say, I want to be fed this morning. I want, to, I want some spiritual food. And I want to take it and I want to apply it to my life this week. And we work as a team. So the children of Israel did a few things, six things. Number one, they stayed longer than was expected. They moved from a duty to an exercise of their heart. Now, we can look at, and again, people do it in our culture. It's the Christian culture, which can be very stale, very boring, very dry. And sometimes it's a self-imposed duty. I haven't been to church in a few weeks. I have to go. Well, why do you have to go? Well, I just feel like I have to go. Okay, it's more than that. I'm not telling anybody they have to come to church. And some have this, again, religious self-imposed duty. Or we can move further than that and say, I want to do it because I want to be fed God's word. Even getting up in the morning and praying. Well, if my friends find out that I got up this morning and he didn't pray, they're going to be upset with me. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with your friends. It's a personal relationship with your creator. You see? It's a heart action. So, number one, they stayed longer than was expected. Two, they had fasting. They fasted. They were in sackcloth and dust. And these go together. But what we find out of the three, the common denominator is, is a is a deficit, a poverty of. So they fasted, they didn't eat. And we see that in the scriptures, a poverty of physical sustenance. They had sackcloth, which were these kind of goat hairy, kind of cape, definitely not fashionable, itchy garments that they would put on. So it was, a, it was a deficit of raiment, of clothing. And three, they put dust on their heads. This is an attitude of mourning. You know what, Lord? This dust on the ground, you breathed in Genesis, you breathed life and it became the first person you made us out of the dust of the earth so they're mourning their sin because they sinned against their generous god they took advantage three they separated themselves from foreigners well we see a lot of this in the news today and it's funny how those that have a have a bias against christianity or or the bible they'll read something like this and not go aha you're xenophobic Ha, huh, they separated themselves from foreigners. They're not looking at the context. You can take anything out of the scripture, out of context, and make a doctrine that doesn't exist. You know, some become apoplectic as they see this type of thing take place. You know, this word xenophobia, we see it in the news a lot. But let's check this out. Let's dig a little deeper. What do groups today do when they separate themselves from society? Whether they're a racial group, an ethnic group, or a religious group. What they usually do is they get together and say, hey, we're great. Look at everybody. We're great. That's what they do. This is the opposite. The Jews didn't get together to say we're great. They got together to say we're not great. We've sinned. And we need a little alone time with our God. See, they weren't being xenophobic. They were being, it was humiliating to them. And they needed to have that alone time with the Lord. Who does that? 
probably if we did it a little bit more in this country, instead of a you know, country being divided into these prideful groups, maybe there would be some healing in the nation. You know, even does the church do that? What if there was a Christian outreach and you paid your $30 or your $50 and they had a bunch of people speaking and you go to this, this concert or this outreach, first Christian leader comes up and goes, you need to repent. Second guy goes to come up and says, you're all sinners. The third guy comes up and says, we need to confess before the Lord our sins. How many people would say, man, this is a drag. I want my $30 back. I didn't come here to be told I'm a sinner. But that's the mentality sometimes even in the Christian culture. This, we need to go somewhere to feel good about ourselves. Sometimes we need to go somewhere to feel bad about ourselves. Okay? The fourth point is they confess their sins. This should really be a regular part of our prayer life. For me, it's just the way it works in my life. I wake up in the morning, wow, Lord, I'm alive again. <laughs> Sleep is a weird thing. I was talking to my wife about that last night. You kind of go somewhere for a few hours, and you wake up, and you're like, oh, I'm alive again, you know? <laughs> so it's weird. But So what I do is at the end of the day, I just, because I know I'm going to go back to sleep again, I don't know if I'm going to wake up, I just confess my sins in the evening. And go, you know, I could have done a better job, Lord, and you know, I wasn't really a good witness today. You know, you confess your sins. It's important. Five, they read God's word. See, this is a replacement for the purging. Confess your sins. Repent. Fast. Sackcloth and ashes. You're purging all the bad out of yourself. But what happens? You have this figurative or spiritual vacuum that is now there. And it's got to be filled with something. So they read God's word. Get rid of the bad and let that vacuum suck in the good. You know, I, I deal with those that I, I deal with with addictions and trying to help them. And it's, it just can't be the purge. You have to replace it with something. You have to give the brain new material to work with. You have to develop now some good habits. You know, to meditate on God's word should be one of those things. So, the purge, and then the, the filling. And six, of course, is worship, which I just felt like putting this in my notes. Worship is different from singing. We can sing a song on the radio as we're driving. Some of us do that. hope nobody else hears us. Okay? It's also different from performance. And I mean, I've gone to events where there's been such just perfection in the way they do worship where it's, I can't even worship with them because it's, it's designed to be a performance. And it, worship loses itself. I can imagine Pastor Paul's struggle with having it sound really good, but also engaging the body to be a part of that worship. I mean, gee, before I was saved, I used to go to concerts and flick the lighters, you know what I'm saying? That's not what I want to do at church. I want to worship God. You see what I'm saying? So worship is different from singing, although singing can be a part of worship, and performance. Very important we understand that. Four, continuing on. Then Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah and Pethathiah said. I'll stop there. <laughs> so the second point, the first thing is the spiritual prep. Second is, who are the players? 
Who's involved in this? Who are the involved persons, so to speak? The leaders. You know what I love about the leaders here? The leaders said, we're with you. We need to confess our sins too. We need to... Where did we get to the point in, in American culture where our leaders think that they're so far above us? They think that they can commit crimes. They think that they can have uh, amenities that we're not necessarily to have because they're the elites. It's sad what's happened to this country. I remember reading a lot about how our nations formed and the leaders, even when they were in Congress and they served, they served and they willingly backed out so somebody else could serve, another good man or good woman could serve. Things have changed. And even in the Christian culture, we don't want our leaders talking down to us. Hey, all you people here, I'm one of you. I'm a sinner just like you are, saved by grace. Amen? And if you don't believe that, Ask my wife. <laughs> She'll tell you that I'm a sinner. So this is what you have. The leaders, they're involved. There's epic history. There's, you know, just the worship of God. There's a, there's a fire that's spreading. There's, it's, it's an awesome thing. Verse 5. So they said what? Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, you've made the earth and all the things in it, the seas and all that it is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. The third point, this is a testament to God's character and his ability. Kind of reminds me of those praise psalms. And here's another thing, when we pray, some people write, go right to the Santa Claus list. Lord, I need, here's my list. You see it? This is what I need. Well, you, when you meet people on the street that you love, is that how you greet them? Hey, need something. How about a hello? How about a, how's your day? You know what I'm saying? But why would we do any, anything less with the Lord? This is called worship. We come privately before our God and we worship him. I want to digress a moment and talk about the creation account. And this is why I asked that the high schoolers be in here because you, some of you will be going to secular colleges and you might get a wake-up call. Uh, you might have a professor who might be a throwback from the 60s and is antagonistic to Christianity and once they find out, they're going to try to warp your mind. You know, Honestly, some of them are just, to me, they're bullies until somebody stands up to them and knows something. Why do we believe what we believe? So I'm going to go into the creation account for a moment. Evolution denies that God could create life with perfection on the first try. And honestly, some Christians try to reconcile the two. They're fearful. They're scared. You know, my friends or my, my associates are making me feel like I'm dumb. So they start to adopt some of the world's ways. This is Charles Darwin. This is a guy who wrote in his own memoirs about the failings of his theory. This is a guy who took um, races and he spoke about the superiority of some races. You know the problem that we have in this country some 200 years later with this race nonsense? comes from him. This is race garbage. According to the scripture, we're all from the same race. But we look at each other in our camps and we're suspicious because we've been brainwashed to believe that. Adolf Hitler took that same theory and said that the Jews were inferior. And he got all the German, well most of them, to believe that and that was how he was able to exterminate them. Race. You see what I'm saying? So I want to push back against that. Honestly, if you're a Christian and you believe in evolution, you believe in a weak God. 
that he couldn't get it right on the first try. You know, the psalmist didn't say, oh God, you're so great, but it took you millions of years to make the first organism. It doesn't say that in the Psalms. He said it, and it happened. Okay? Evolution believes in random mutations. Look up the word mutation. Mutations are a bad thing. 99.9% of the times. It's a mathematical and a statistical impossibility. I was fascinated when at Rutgers I took a statistics class, and boy, the things with numbers, the numbers don't lie. It either is or it isn't. It's either possible or it's not possible. But evolution says that random mutations uh, form, become life forms, and they become perfected over time. And again, what did Darwin lack? He lacked, he lacked the invention of the electron microscope. That didn't happen until years later. See, Darwin thought that the cell was a very simple uh, piece of machinery, that it was like a blob of, of you know, protoplasm and stuff that he really didn't know. Then with the electron microscope and other, there's even better microscopes now, and they found that there's DNA in there, they found the nucleus, they found the cytoplasm, they found the mitochondria, you can go on and on. The cell is is incredibly complex that we couldn't even create it with all the technology we have. He didn't have that information. You see, evolution is worship of a man. Even Darwin himself didn't say, well, this is it. He called it a theory, right? Sometimes when in Christianity, you try to hold two beliefs and, and there's confusion. That's actually a term in behaviorism called cognitive dissonance. You're holding two beliefs that are completely contradictory and it's confusing, right? And it causes stress. Darwin said this, quote, if, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive, I love this, slight modifications my theory would absolutely break down. You know, he wasn't even married to his theory. Slight modifications, that means somebody's got to modify it. You see, I can't watch these nature shows because my wife, she'll tell you, I get so angry. There's this narrator and he goes, talking about evolution and there's a great design. Design? Who designed it? How does mutations design anything? What is it, the force? And, you know, they, they deny God. Well, if you're interested and you're taking notes, Michael B. is a biochemical researcher at Lehigh University. He coined the term irreducible complexity, which exploits Darwin's theory. And it basically says that non-functioning intermediaries in biological structures will cause the breakdown of the organ and ultimately the organism. He wrote the book called Darwin's Black Box. Fascinating book. And he uses the bacterial flagellum. A little bacterium is swimming around in his medium somewhere. And he's got this flagellum. He's got like an outboard motor on a boat. And it gets him around. It not only moves faster and slower, but it also can navigate and make the little bacterium turn. Without that, the thing can't survive. But when you go down to the cellular level, he speaks about every single part of that flagellum. The rotor, the stator, the insulation, the... <laughs> It's amazing, the, the electrical system that tells it what to do in this little cell, this little nothing. You know what I love? To, to kill the, the theory is the reproductive system. So it takes millions of years, right? You've got a male and you've got a female. And if they don't get it right in their lifetime, you don't have the species. It ends. Done. Millions of years? 
<laughs> so tell me something. How does the reproductive system of the male and the female communicate with each other and evolve at the same time so that the, when they do whatever, right, that they can reproduce? It's bizarre. It's bizarre. The truth is, the more you learn about science, the less you'll believe in evolution. And I can tell you, here's another one. Let's look at this. Let me use evolution in a non-Darwinist term, something that evolves. So you have uh, chemistry. You look at the periodical ta table. You have carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and all these really neat things in the periodic table. Is there any life in those things, in those atoms? No. Scientists will tell, they'll agree with us. You take these elements and you make compounds, right? NaCl, H2SO4, I mean, just things that we deal with every day in life. You know, they come together, they form these compounds. Is there life in those compounds? Both we and the scientists will say no. So how do those compounds and those elements form a cell? Because we're made up of those compounds, right? The Lord took that same dirt, breathed the life-giving spirit, and it was a man. So somehow he took the stuff in the dirt, breathed life, gave it a spirit, and it's walked, and it talked, and it thought, and it worshipped. Pretty impressive, isn't it? And when it dies, it goes back into the ground. And it helps trees grow and plants, and the cows eat it. The same person who passed away and died in the field. You know, the maggots and the bacteria and all that stuff break everything down to its, its cellular level, back to its atomic level. So how did chemistry become biology and bio biology get life? Answer that question, scientist. I've talked to a lot of people, biologists, doctors, etc. And you know what's really sad? They get frustrated. And they're angry that you don't believe what they believe. Maybe it's the way I'm saying it. <laughs> That's always a possibility. But, <laughs> but they're just taught to be married to this theory. And they, they can't even defend it. But in the universities, they shove it down your throat. And what, do you, what happens if you disagree, college students? They'll either shut you down or you get a bad grade. What does that tell you? We, we, we want to talk about things? We want to have open discussions in this country? No, we don't. There's a certain group of people that don't want to have the discussions. They just want you to believe it blindly. And I'm going to tell you something. That's not even faith. That's some religion. Okay? It's the religion of Darwin. Anyway... Um, I have a lot of fun with biology, I have a lot of fun with chemistry, but you need to tell me, from the atom to the cell, all these elements, it's a transition, a progress, you keep adding to it, where does life come in? Only God can explain that, the scientists cannot. You ask them that question, they don't have the answer for it. So there's your little infusion of apologetics this morning. Continuing on, <laughs> verse 7, You are the Lord God who chose Abram, and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. This is God's covenant relationship with his people. And you know what? We have a covenant relationship with the Lord as well in the New Testament, in the New Dispensation, since him sending his son, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Through that belief in Jesus, he tells us in his word all the things he's promised us. Well, we have eternal life, we have eternity with God, that's an awesome thing. 
no more sin. Our bodies change. We're going to be renewed, and uh, we can have an abundant life on the earth. Seriously, how do you sweeten the pot more than that? What more could you ask for? What do I have to give up? Well, your self-directed life, but you'll see. You'll enjoy it. You've got to check it out. Uh, so we have a relationship with the Lord as well. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty water. So this is, of course, the exodus from Egypt. Um, that we see here, and he delivered his people. Pretty awesome thing. Egypt today, Bible teachers look at that as a, a type of the world. Now, watch this, because children of Israel, not all of them are really thrilled to be away from Egypt too, that much. And it's, it's a picture, you know? And, and I can see this in the Christian community, where there are some that still want to be tethered to the world in an unhealthy way. We'll continue, verse 12. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. So God interacted with his people as we see through the scripture. Uh, we saw the, the tabernacle, we saw the temple, right? But now in the age of, of grace, in the age of Jesus Christ, he seals us with his Holy Spirit. So it's no longer, wow, God's dwelling in that temple. He's, he's in the Holy of Holies. And, and look, we can, Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord at some point leave because of the evil of the leaders and the people. Uh, they saw, wow, the, the cloud, the pillar of fire. Today we have the Holy Spirit sealed, the Bible says, inside of us. He's always there. He's always, and Jesus said, guess what? As much as you ask for the Holy Spirit, God will give you. He says, you don't ask. Christians, we need to ask. We live in troubling times. You need to ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, You came down also on Mount Sinai and, and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You know the Ten Commandments that they're trying to get rid of? I know it's because there's a God element to it, but take them out of the courtroom, take them out of the schools. shouldn't kill, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie about people. God says in his word, these are good. They're good for us. Don't go worshiping other gods. You know, you, you, you lose something in that relationship. You lose the connection to God and to eternity. These are all things for our goodness, for our benefit. 14, you made known to them your holy Sabbath. Right? Rest. You know, in our fallen state, six days. Five days, six days we can work, but we've got to take a day of rest. Anxiety and nervousness and all kinds of stuff come into our lives when we just keep pushing it and pushing it and burning the candle at both ends. Does God know what he's talking about? Yeah, he made us. He knows our frame and he knows what our, our limitations are. We don't always, but he does. He commanded them uh, precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in and possess the land which you had sworn to give them. So he's providing for his people. You know, it's, there's water, there's food, right? But there's also his laws and ordinances. Okay, I mean, it's great to, be, to just feed the body and fill the body, but 
we are more than just body. As a matter of fact, it's the body that sloughs off when we die. It's the spirit that goes to be with the Lord. So it's very important that not only did he provide for us externally, internally, but internally, like in spiritual, psych- psychological, you know, who we are, the essence of who we are. 16, but they and our fathers acted proudly. Notice they're not blaming somebody else. What do we see today in society? Everybody blames somebody for what they do wrong. I've got to find somebody to blame. And maybe I could sue them too and we had a few million dollars because I did something stupid. It was a bad judgment call. This is our society. And we're always shifting blame. And sometimes people do that in the church. It's, it's not acceptable. They hardened their necks. They did, not ob- they did not heed your commandments and they refused to obey. And they were not mindful of your wonders. Man, they had forgot about the wonders of God that you did among them, but they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. As we go through actually this Wednesday too with King Ahab, you know, what we do know about our God is he doesn't have a, a hair trigger. Sometimes we do. Catch us in a wrong mood, snap at somebody. He doesn't do that. He lets us go for a while. He ministers to us. He warns us. And when he has to deal with us, we can't say, you are unfair, God. If we really look back retrospectively, we can see that there were warning signs. There, were, there was love that was told us not to do it. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. Even Moses was fed up with the people and he was ready to, you know, to quit how many times? But God loved his people. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day and to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness so they lack nothing. I love the detail here. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Believe me, the wilderness was the wilderness. They weren't able to stop to the Jackson outlets and, hey, everybody, get new sneakers. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be a long trip. Use the restrooms. Get some food. Come on. Get your backpack. No, nah, it didn't exist. So <laughs> he, what he did was he even blessed them with their shoes and their clothing. The soles of the shoes didn't wear out. <laughs> You know, could you imagine going months and picking up your shoe going, I can still see the treads in there. Wouldn't that be great if we could do that today? But God had a purpose for his people, you know, and they're in their pride and their stubbornness and their unappreciative nature. They wanted to go back to, to Egypt, you know, yeah, but hey guys, you guys were slaves. Oh yeah, details, details. But the leeks and the onions and it's hot out here, you know. You go back to our little places and, you know, yep. I'm just amazed that, you know, when I got saved, the economy was good relatively. You know, a lot of things were kind of okay in society. But you know what? I knew that I needed the Lord. I don't understand today where the whole world's falling apart. And you say, it's Jesus Christ. It's God who sent his son. He loves you. Yes, he, even though you're a sinner, he still loves you. Died for your sin. You know, you have to do is believe in him. Abundant life, heaven, angels, pretty neat stuff. 
nah, just stay here. I like, I like it in Egypt. It's sad. It's sad. Is it a difficult decision? You know, I shouldn't talk. I'll be honest with you. It, it took several evangelists through college, through my young adult years, through as a teenager. I was stubborn too. But eventually when I made that decision to follow Christ, like, man, I should have done this earlier. Wow, things could have been much different in my relationships and such. So, but you know what? Here, here we are. Hey, you'll have an opportunity today to give your heart to the Lord. It's up to you. God loves you. He did everything, but he's not going to force you. He's a gentleman. We continue. Verse 22. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Again, this chronological history. Now, Sadly, you know, it's it's same thing with us. We want to just love our kids. We want to just give them maybe what we didn't have and things to that nature. But sometimes people take stuff for granted. Uh, Thomas Carlyle said, quote, check this out. For every 100 men who can stand adversity, a lot of us can stand adversity, there is only one who can stand prosperity. Think about that. Sometimes when the devil is beating on the house and the winds are blowing and the, the storms of life are coming and we just, oh, it's another storm. This is life. And then all of a sudden, somebody gets prosperity. They get something that, wow, this is what I've always been wanting in my life and maybe it's not good for you. And things start to change. You know? You ever notice sometimes the more you do for people, the less they like you? You ever been in somebody's life and blessed and give and gave and blessed and they just treat you so bad? It's a weird principle. What is that all about? But it happens. <laughs> so that's happened to a lot of you. I can tell by all the groaning, right? But God gave out of his heart and a lot of the people took advantage. Verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who testified against them. That's remarkable. Here comes a warning. Hey, everybody knows this guy's a prophet. Oh, what? He's saying something. What? Repent? Kill him. Not just one, many of them. To turn them to yourself. And they work great provocations. Therefore, you deliver them into the hands of their enemies who oppress them. Now, was that spiteful of God to do that? No. He told them right in the law and the second law and the law kept being repeated. I'm your father. I love you. You walk away and you start going after other gods. You're going to lose the benefits of that relationship. I'm not going to protect your borders. I'm not going to have my protective hand over you. And I just wonder where that's going to leave the United States. Keep pushing them out. Keep pushing them out. Keep pushing them out. Well, maybe we're going to start to weaken from the inside the mightiest military on the planet. Well, not going to do us much good if we're all fractured inside, is it? 
So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them in the time of their trouble when they cried to you. You heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hands of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. See this pattern here. And testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. But they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. And for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the land of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God gracious and merciful. I should have counted how many times I'm just thinking about it now. It says merciful, mercy, mercies. It's all throughout this. Oh, the folly of man. You know, uh, they, they turned violent. They killed God's prophets, many of them who did miracles, but they killed them anyway because they didn't like the message. And that pressure, I can see that spirit of pressure today in the Christian community. You know, listen, if you call yourself a pastor, give the good and the not so good. Give the convicting and the encouraging. Don't tell me you just want to say positive things. You're not a pastor. You're a motivational speaker. There's a difference. Okay, there's that pressure. I want to please my audience. God didn't call us up here to please our audience. He called us to tell the truth and see which way it cuts. It's up to him and the Holy Spirit. But we read what's in here. You know, you can't, you can't continue to, to mock God and think that there's not going to be a time of reckoning. You know, I mean, look, I, we could talk about our nation, but are, are, do we really have Christian leaders running the country? Probably at this point, no. We really need to think about our own communities, our own families, the Christian community. And I'm going to read some scripture about that as well. You can't keep mocking God and expect Him to give benefits of relationship. You just can't do it. It's right here in the scripture. Why would He do this to His covenant, beloved Israel, but then let the people today slide? I don't, I don't see it, and I don't see things getting better. We need to get mo moving, Christians. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you. That has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us. You have dealt faithfully. We have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests, our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies. Let me tell you something. In a patriarchal society, you spoke with respect to your father and your grandfather. That's just the way it was back then. This is, this is remarkable. Lord, we've sinned. Our leaders have sinned. Our fathers have sinned. Our grandfathers have sinned. You know what, Lord? We're in this mess because we put ourselves here. Who does that? <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm getting used to doing that when something in my life, there's a problem or there's an impasse between me and the Lord. I'm like, I get it, Lord. It's, it's, just, it's just me. I'm like, I get it. I, I moved. I, I got it. You know, I'm going to blame him? Seriously, where's that going to get me? It's not true, and it's not going to help matters any. I, I, I have to just look back and see where I, I 
you know, I was holding his hand and I ran ahead of him. He says, for they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are servants today, full circle. Here we are today. And the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its good things, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. And they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. Foreign kings, right? The Persians. And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. Because, Lord, we know our frame. We're going to write it down too. Because we know how we can be. Oh, I didn't really say that. You ever deal with somebody that they're just so fast and loose with the truth? And they keep changing what the truth is? That's why we have such a problem, Tate, in our culture. We can't even write a contract to sell a house without putting every single... You can't do anything today without these long legalese contracts and then have lawyers look over it because people can't agree to anything, right? It was the same problem back then. You know, back in the day, you gave your word and you were expected to keep your word. Today, you didn't get a lawyer? It's on you. It's your fault. You didn't write a contract? I don't want to hear about it. That's the attitude. So the fourth point here is restoration of the covenant. And check this out. He moves full circle. So, okay, so you're looking this way. To the left, if we're in, in school, the timelines start with the left is the past and right is the future. So they talk about the creation account, right? They talk about Abraham being chosen. You know, he had a great nation, great peoples from him. Keep moving forward in time. Talk about going into Canaan. Well, the wilderness wandering. Now we're in Canaan. We're in the promised land. Now we're in rebellion. Now we got problems. First Kings, which I'm going to be doing and continuing on Wednesday, we're over here a little further with King Ahab, who was just a wicked king, a divided kingdom. Okay, after King Ahab, you have 722 BC when the Assyrians come in, just destroy the northern kingdom, pull the people out, expatriate them, and put their people in the land to try to mix them and you know, break down their heritage and their religion and all that kind of stuff. From 722 B.C., you have 586 B.C., which is the Babylonian southern kingdom. Get through the walls of Jerusalem, burn it to the ground, destroy the temple, steal the gold, the artifacts, kill the people, send them to Babylon. From, I'm going to run out of space soon. <laughs> so from 586 B.C., you have the Persian kings that come. They take over the Babylonians. God softens their hearts because the children of Israel, for 70 years, and in some places, depending on what we're talking about, you know, their, their hearts are ready to do right again. So here's the Persians take over from the Babylonians. And here we are in, in Nehemiah. Here we are. And what happens is God in his mercy lets them rebuild the temple, rebuilds the walls, rebuilds the gates. But guys, get your hearts right. From here, we go to Malachi. The last, you have the last few prophets. And over here, we have the first century in Jesus Christ. Pretty interesting, isn't it? You can see this. It's, it's all in order. You know, sometimes we have to study this, but God, in a split second, in his mind, it's all there. It's all in perfect order. All right, Jesus Christ. Okay, now I'm going to give you God in the flesh. We're going to be done with the, the cloud and, the, and, and, and the, the temple and the tabernacle and, you know, the gates and stuff. Here comes my son. He's going to do it right the first time, 
die for your sins. He's going to be the priest. He's going to be the sacrifice. He's going to do the giving of the Holy Spirit. And boom, the church age starts. It's fascinating to me. So he, he softens the heart of the, of the Persians. But you, you can see these cycles, and I'll go through them. God blesses, right? Blessings often bring prosperity. Not always, but sometimes pro- too much prosperity can bring debauchery and sin. A haughty, a prideful, we got everything. You know, they don't need God anymore. Look, look what I have. From there, sin leads to punishment. Hopefully, punishment leads to repentance. Repentance, on God's part, leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads now with both parties, because God is a holy God, He's satisfied. Restoration. You know, we can see this sometimes in our personal relationships. We hurt each other, we say we're sorry, we really mean it, we change, and now there's a restored friendship. That's, you know, usually a lot of tears, a lot of emotions. Restoration is awesome. And then start the blessings again. And hopefully, that cycle doesn't start all over again. I want to read two scriptures to you, and then we'll close. The first one is 2 Chronicles 7, 14 through 15. Many of you are familiar with this. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 through 15. Now, for my Bible students, there is a contextual application to Israel. However, we can make application today. 14, if my people... God didn't say, if those Gentiles, if those unbelievers today, if those, if they would just get their act together, and sometimes we do that in the church. Oh yeah, those people out there, because we don't want to deal with our own problems. God says, if my people, it needs to start with my people, I'll worry about everybody else. And hopefully, if you get your heart right, you can have a positive influence on those that don't believe. That's what I sent you out there to do. Make disciples of the nations. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, speaking about his people, not the unbelievers, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and hear, hear their, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. I'm ready. God's like, I'm ready. I'm always here. Eyes are open. Ears, I'm ready. It's New Testament counterpart. First uh, Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? As Christians, we've got to stop pointing the fingers. You know, I did a little apologetics. Of course, I don't like Darwinism. I don't despise the atheists. I, I want to win them to Christ. And if I can strike at the heart of what they believe and send them home with doubt, then the next time we get together, I can tell them what now the truth is. Remember, purge, fill the vacuum. You know, we want to love those people out there. But Christians have gotten good at pointing fingers outside because now we don't have to point it at ourselves. That's not what the Scripture says. I find Christians who want to vilify the unbelievers and the ungodly and give their Christian friends who are doing awful things and negatively influencing them, giving them a pass. It's not the way it's supposed to work. Pastor Joe, what can I do? Well, personal revival. I can tell you right now, I don't have control of any of you. I can only deal with my own heart. You will deal with your own hearts, right? More of the Holy Spirit, Lord, change my heart. You know, and, and then what happens is, and I love this, if you read about the revivals in the past, didn't necessarily get picked up by the news. If there was a revival today, probably wouldn't be on CNN or Fox News. 
Holy Spirit doesn't need to be on television. He doesn't need to be in a big wow event. Individual, 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 boop, 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 and you see the board light up. It's ubiquitous. It's happening everywhere. And there's a fire that takes place, a fire from the Holy Spirit. But you know what? It starts with individuals. It really does. What we can do is we can affect our own sphere of influence in the world that God has put us in. And if a bunch of Christians are doing that, our communities will change. Will change. There's a, a, an expression that says, if you're, not, if you're not doing it right at home, don't export it. You know what I'm saying? You know? How are we treating our spouses? How are we treating our kids? Are we, are we diligent? You know? Only we can answer that question. Maybe if communities change, nation will start to change. Autonomous of what the politicians are doing. Okay, I don't care what they're doing. But it needs to start with the individual. So my prayer for today is that we would... You can't look at the news and think everything's fine. If you're doing that, you're trying to talk to yourself and you're dealing with fear. Everything is not fine. And you know what? God has given us His Holy Spirit. God has given us His Gospel. God has given us the power to change. Not only ourselves, but when other people catch it, that they change. How do we get here? <laughs> How do we get here? Right? You think He can't do it to your neighbors and your boss and all those other people? Some of them you don't like? He can do it. So I just pray as we go through this amazing, the living word, 2,500 years ago this was written. 2,500 years later, it's way applicable. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.